0: This week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show, a look at the wet weather in the West, plus the 2023 farm income forecast is in, and we'll tell you what it says. We also take a look at wood-based innovations in agriculture, and of course we'll hear from Paul Marchant with another installment of Irons in the Fire. All of that up ahead, but first, an important programming note. For the past decade, it's been my pleasure to produce and to bring to you every week the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. We've partnered with the industry's most influential groups to bring you great content and worked hard to deliver a quality ag program about Idaho's farmers and ranchers each and every week on a group of great Idaho radio stations. But if there's one constant in life, it's that it always changes. And it's with some level of sadness that we share with you that this is the final episode of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. The decision to discontinue the program did not come easy for me. But as life moves forward, different demands force priorities to change, and it seems anytime someone makes a big professional change for what they call personal reasons, it's often one of the three D's, divorce, disease, or death. In my case, I'm still happily married to my wife of 28 years. My family and I are all in relatively good health, and no, nobody died. Simply put, it's been a good run, and it was time to move forward. So with more thanks to give than we have time for today, from the elected officials who so graciously provided their time and expertise, to radio station management and industry leaders and experts who inform us week after week with their insights, I'll tell you who I'd like to thank the most. You. Any radio program without listeners is like that tree falling in the forest that nobody hears. You're what makes it all possible and you're what makes it worth it. So of all the people who deserve thanks over the more than 10 years the Idaho Farm and Ranch show has been around, it's you that I thank most deeply. So in this final episode, we'll make the most of it with our news just ahead. What do basketball, choir, drama club, and marching band all have in common? They're all high school activities that offer learning opportunities not necessarily found in the classroom. They take up just a fraction of a typical Idaho high school's budget, and they go a long way to giving young people the tools they need to thrive. High school activities,
1: they're more than extracurricular,
0: they're extra important too. This message presented by the Idaho High School Activities Association and the Idaho Athletic Administrators Association. Before February ends, the start of the latest Conservation Reserve Program, General Acreage Enrollment, will begin. Here's Rod Bain with more.
2: It will be the 58th USDA Conservation Reserve Program General Sign-Up, scheduled to start on February 27th, one of several CRP signups this year. As Farm Service Agency Administrator Zach Ducino says, whether it's
3: general CRP or grasslands, it's never too early to start planning and start getting together your offer, and our county offices are always willing to help producers get ahead of the game.
2: Currently, 23 million acres are enrolled in CRP with almost two. Two billion set to expire this year. General CRP sign-up concludes on April 7th. Dates will soon be announced for grassland CRP enrollment, while continuous CRP allows for year-round sign-up. More details about CRP are available through local FSA service centers or online at www.fsa.usda.gov. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: Many nations need emergency food assistance, but one official says they also need assistance in making their food production systems more resilient. Here's Gary Crawford with this report.
4: USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, operates various food aid programs for nations in need, programs such as Food for Peace. But along with providing food in hunger emergencies, it also brings to those countries activities and programs centered around
1: poverty reduction and increasing the yields of small smallhold farmers in particular to increase food security in the long term.
4: Sarah Charles helps run humanitarian assistance programs for USAID, and she told the Senate Ag Committee the other day emergency food aid is essential for many countries, but also essential are the associated projects.
1: Targeting small-scale farmers or helping pastoralists transition to agro-pastoralists to help them build resilience and be more able to withstand climate shocks or conflict shocks by improving productivity.
4: Sarah Charles says climate change and conflicts such as the war in Ukraine are proving the need for agriculture in general to be more resilient to changing conditions. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
0: Well, this past January offers examples how multiplying market access opportunities for our nation's food and ag goods is several times a one-market, one-commodity approach. Here's Rod Bain with more.
2: It all adds up. A specific U.S. food and farm commodity gaining or expanding access in an export market times several such examples. The result? Increased economic opportunities for our nation's ag sector. That's according to the U.S. Trade Representative's Office Chief Ag Negotiator, Doug McCaleb, who provides as examples from this past January alone. We've gotten
5: market access into Ghana for U.S. meat products. We've gotten access into Honduras for chicken products. China has approved six new GE products for sale in China. And India has reduced its tariff on pecans and eliminated its tariff on industrial ethanol, as well as a few other products. The ambassador adds he
2: expects effort to improve ag trade opportunities to continue at an aggressive pace.
5: You keep that track record up, keep the gas pedal to the floor, and farmers begin to see and feel a difference in the marketplace.
2: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: The dialogue between the United States and the United Kingdom continues this week, while Mexico issued a new decree regarding biotech corn. Here's Michael Clements with more on where the U.S. ag stands around the globe. The United States and the
6: United Kingdom continue to explore the path towards a trade agreement, though there are still several obstacles that need to be addressed. Dave Salmondson, American Farm Bureau Federation Senior Government Affairs Director, explains.
7: Both the countries are engaging in something called dialogues, where they are exploring issues, trying to get better relationships. The U.S. and U.K. in agriculture have a pretty robust trade. Each country sends about $2 billion worth annually to the other, but it certainly is something that definitely can be improved.
6: The United Kingdom Secretary of Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs called for a free trade agreement with the U.S. this week in Washington.
7: Farm Bureau certainly supports that. There's several barriers. The United Kingdom is still moving away from their time as being part of the European Union. Their regulatory system needs a push. They need to move closer to a science based standard system that we have they need to reduce their tariffs they've signed trade agreements this past year with both Australia and New Zealand where they're phasing out tariffs on food imports and we need the same treatment
6: Meanwhile Mexico issued a new decree regarding importing genetically modified corn
7: they want to phase out fairly quickly the imports of white corn from the US and look to some point next year or beyond to phase down imports of yellow corn none of this has any basis in science so this is giving more impetus to the folks urging our trade representative's office just to bring a case under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement against Mexico. Certainly, we think this is a very clear trade violation of that agreement.
0: Michael Clements, Washington. Well, it was a notable first month of 2023 from a weather perspective across much of the country. If you go by temperature and precipitation totals, here's Rod Bain with USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey.
3: Certainly on the unusually warm and wet side.
2: What USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says was the weather pattern for this past January.
3: We did see our sixth warmest, 18th wettest January of record
2: with records going back as far as 1895. Much of
3: the warmth was concentrated across the eastern half of the country, and we did see a number of states, mainly in the northeast, that had record setting January warmth. In fact, if you look at the overall temperature patterns for the month of January, it
2: was pretty impressive. More than five degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century mean. While precipitation averaged three inches last month across the country.
3: was more than 120% of the 20th century mean.
2: Perhaps more impressive, it was the second wettest and fourth warmest January of the 21st century. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: The Department of Agriculture expects farm sector income to decline in 2023. Michael Clement shares the data. USDA's February Farm
6: Income Report shows net farm income, a broad measure of farm profitability, is currently forecast at $137 billion in 2023. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Danny Munch says that represents a $26 billion decline from last year. And that
8: $26 billion decline erases the $22 billion gain that farmers were expected to receive between 2021 and 2022. So a big drop from last year, but we're still above the prior 10-year average, which is a good thing.
6: Part of the decline in net farm income stems from increasing input costs.
8: The report expects farm and ranch production expenses to continue to increase by $18.2 billion, or 4%, over last year. That's already on top of a $70 billion increase from last year. Much of those increases are linked to marketing and transportation expenses, interest expenses, which are going to increase as the Fed attempts to fight inflation, and labor costs, which are increasing across the board.
6: Munch says farm sector debt is expected to increase to a record $535 billion as well. Most of
8: that's tied up in the form of real estate debt, mainly because farm real estate continues to increase in value. This really just means that the, the value of assets regularly being purchased with debt is rising, so it'll be increasingly important for farmers and ranchers to pay down debt and maintain that healthy balance sheet. And that's going to be ever more cumbersome as interest rates increase well into the next few years.
6: Read more on the Market Intel page at FB.org. Michael Clements, Washington.
0: Well, the latest round of Rural Partners Network Investments focuses on efforts to improve service to historically underserved communities in rural America. Rod Bain has more with Secretary Tom Vilsack
2: continuing efforts to improve historically underserved rural communities were announced Wednesday in the form of investments through the Rural Partners Network.
3: The Department of Agriculture is announcing $262 million from rural development to mission area focused on projects that will not only create good-paying jobs but also provide a wide array of opportunities in these communities from low-income housing to renewable energy projects to improve water and wastewater systems to expanding educational health care facilities.
2: Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says the current round of funding is targeted for 68 projects within the Rural Partners Network in nine states and Puerto Rico. Since its launch last April, 36 community partner networks currently are active in 10 states and the Puerto Rican Commonwealth.
3: In some cases, it's an individual city. In some cases, multiple counties that have been designated.
2: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: In our next segment, a deeper look at the farm income forecast and also the development of wood-based innovation in agriculture on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Welcome back to the final episode of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. What are the 2023 financial prospects for the nation's farmers? Well, Gary Crawford has the opinions of two experts on this edition of Agriculture USA.
9: The last two years in American agriculture were the best two years in terms of net cash income. In the history of our country
4: agriculture secretary tom vilsack says that the nation's farmers in 2021 generated just under 140 billion dollars in net farm income that broke the previous record but then came 2022 another record of breaking income year 162.7 billion dollars now that takes us to 2023 what kind of income year can the nation's farmers expect Coming up, we'll take a look at what the experts are forecasting on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford.
10: It may not require a textbook, but it's filled with valuable lessons. It may not take place in a classroom, but it's an ideal environment for learning. It may not involve a diploma, but it can help prepare Idaho's young people for life. It's high school sports. a winning part of a complete education. This message presented by the Idaho High School Activities Association and the Idaho Athletic Administrators Association.
4: The Agriculture Department has issued its forecast for 2023 farm income, and right now it does not look like we can use that annoying, record-breaking sound effect for this year. At least that's how it looks at the moment. USDA forecasting a drop in overall farm cash receipts and a drop in net income. This latest forecast has producers generating just over a $150.5 billion in net cash income.
11: Down. About 21 percent relative to last year.
4: Which, as we said, was a record high income year. This from Spiro Stefano. He runs the USDA's Economic Research Service. He says USDA is projecting a 4.3 percent decline in total cash receipts to farmers. A 3 percent drop for crop receipts. Corn, soybeans,
11: cotton, fruit, vegetables, all forecast to go down.
4: Only wheat will see an increase in receipts, but by less than 1 percent. Livestock receipts, on the other hand, expected to drop more, 5.7 percent, led by a decline in dairy sales.
11: Dairy is looking at a nearly 17 percent drop in cash receipts.
4: Most all of these crop and livestock declines due to the expectation that prices that farmers will be getting for their commodities are likely to fall from their very high levels of last year. Also, Farmers will get a lot less income from the government this year.
3: Government payments declining a little over 34 percent year over year.
4: That voice belongs to the Agriculture Department's Chief Economist, Seth Meyer. He says this is a couple of years in a row now for direct government payments declining. Meyer says the payments surrounding the pandemic are coming to a halt now. Plus,
3: with high commodity prices, we see payments related to commodity prices decline as well, too. Right. So some of those payments that fluctuate with commodity prices, they're shrinking to quite low levels here and expected for 2023.
4: So farmers cash incomes are likely to be less than a year ago. Now, let's look at the expense side of the ledger. Last year, those expenses went up 11 percent. This year, they're
11: going to increase, but not as much about 4
4: percent. Spiro Stefano says actually farmers may spend a little less this year on the three F's, fuel, fertilizer, and feed, but they'll have to shell out more money for just about everything else, including
11: their livestock and poultry purchases. Those are expected to go up nearly 14 percent. Labor costs are going up as well. Labor costs are going up just over 7 percent.
4: But interest rate expenses, those are expected to rise the most of all, up by 22 percent. However, Seth Meyer says because last year was such a good year for farm incomes.
3: Folks should be in a pretty good position in general to maybe be able to minimize borrowing to some extent or narrow borrowing to some extent.
4: But even so, in general, most producers are still going to see profits drop from last year's record high by almost 21 percent. Is this the right music for the rest of the story? One analyst we talked to says, no, this is not going to be a gloom and doom year. First off, almost
3: any year in connection to 2022 is going to look less
4: favorable. Seth Meyer told us we have to look at this new forecast, not as a farm income disaster by any means.
3: Yes, it is declining relative to last year. Yes, receipts are falling. Yes, government payments are falling. Yes, input prices continue to rise, but it's still a better than the long-run average farm income year.
4: Meyer says this is not a case of asking, is the cup half full or half empty? The glass is three-quarters full. It's still a quite good year for farm income. He says producer margins may indeed be squeezed, and so... We're tightening the belt here a little bit. Still got plenty of room. (laughs) Plenty of room. And Meyer says the farm sector will make it through the year... Still in pretty good shape pretty good shape. You've been listening to Agriculture USA, and I'm uh, not in very good shape. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
0: Well, the latest round of applications are now available for two USDA programs fostering development of products and technologies regarding wood-based innovations. Here's Rod Bain with more.
2: Efforts to advance and promote innovations, projects, and markets for wood products have evolved over the past few years. Brian Brashaw of the U.S. Forest Service offers some examples,
12: biochar or cross-laminated timber,
2: as well as biomass for use as feedstock for renewable fuels, among the several potential products under research, development, and eventually commercial application. Support for development of these product and innovations have come in part from Forest Service grants.
12: Our Wood Innovations Program includes both financial assistance programs through the Wood Innovations Grant and the Community Wood Facilities Grant. It also includes technical assistance.
2: Explaining the intent of both grant programs first. The
12: Wood Innovation Grant Program is typically an application of up to $300,000. And that funding can be used to support traditional wood use projects, to advance wood energy markets, to promote wood in commercial, institutional, or multifamily buildings. Those are really emerging product sectors that can use wood and can use significant amounts of wood. It also has included things around wood energy, biochar, and other innovative wood products.
2: As for a second Wood Innovation-Based Funding Program, the Community Wood Facilities Program
12: supports shovel-ready projects for thermally-led wood energy systems. So that means we're leading with heat versus leading with electricity. So thermally-led systems or equipment installations or technology or facilities for innovative wood products or other innovative equipment that can help manufacturers be more efficient. So the Community Wood Grant Program typically allows funding up to a million. dollars. The matching requirement on that is about 35% of the funds.
2: These grant programs have fostered innovative wood building construction projects over time.
12: As of the end of December in 2022, over 1,600 buildings and commercial institutional multifamily have either been built or are in final design. Two great examples, the Ascent Building, 25 stories in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But then on the other side, a really innovative project that we've supported for workforce housing in Seattle called
2: Heartwood. $41 million funding availability through this year's Wood Innovation Grant and Community Wood Grant programs was recently announced.
12: Applications will close on Thursday, March 23rd.
2: Grants.gov has information on and the application for both grant funding projects i'm rod bain reporting for the u.s department of agriculture in washington dc
0: well coming up the kootenai complex how fires affected north idahoans this past summer plus how ponds provide multiple fishing opportunities on the idaho farm and ranch show Well, we welcome you back to this final episode of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Well, ponds provide multiple fishing opportunities, whether those bodies of water are natural or man-made, used for aquaculture or recreation. Here's Rod Bain with more.
2: Whether it is a commercial freshwater fish operation or a body of water on property used for recreation, ponds offer opportunity to cast a line and spend time fishing. Chuck Sikra of University of Florida Extension adds, Ponds vary a lot,
13: both in how they're built and what they're used for, but they can all provide tremendous fishing opportunities for people.
2: There are several kinds of both natural and man-made ponds, some you might be familiar with, perhaps even as a favorite fishing hole. For examples of natural pods,
13: there could be really shallow kind of weedy ponds, maybe housing, northern pike, yellow perch, bass, bluegill. Up in Michigan, they had sinkhole ponds, which were formed by glaciers. They were really deep, often had trout in them, sometimes bass, bluegills. Down south, we have sinkhole ponds where the ground collapses and we end up with a deep pond. Lots of shallow cypress ponds, beaver ponds, often support trout on small streams, maybe bass, bluegill. Man-made pods include impoundments where people maybe dam up a small watershed or a small stream, spring run, and it's nice because we can manipulate the water levels. And then there's a lot of dugout ponds where in Texas, I worked on stock tanks. We're on the side of a hill. They would dig out a pond, take the dirt, build a small levee, and then as water runs down the hill, they have a pond used for watering livestock, but also can provide some good fishing opportunities. A lot of places, we have high water table right below the ground. So if you scoop out the dirt, your pond is sitting in that
2: surficial water table. With that type of pond, you often don't have any way to control water levels. Sikra points out that man-made ponds are primarily constructed for aquaculture purposes.
13: Those ponds are built so a seine could be pulled through and fish either partially harvested or totally harvested. So the advantage of man-made ponds is really towards the aquaculture fish production standpoint. Somebody wanting a few ponds to grow, say some catfish or maybe up north, where generally trout are done more in raceways, flowing often concrete or long shallow ponds where the water
2: flows down through from a spring.
13: A growing number of ponds
2: are becoming part of agritourism operations.
13: In Florida, we have a lot of 20, 30, 40 acre quote-unquote ponds. People don't fish them a lot, so they may actually lease them to a small group of people, a family, just like people lease hunting lands for, say, deer hunting, quail hunting, and restrict who can have access to it. But we also have ponds that people will charge so many dollars per day, and the public can come in and drop money off. Often it's a mailbox and go fish. They're limited how many fish they can keep. And then we have the more intensive where people stock they catfish and people come in and they fish and they
2: pay by the pound
13: or they pay a certain amount per day and they get to keep a couple three fish
2: i'm rod bade reporting for the u.s department of agriculture in washington dc
0: this past summer fires affected the residents uh in northern idaho near bonners ferry and today we learn what it takes for the men and women involved to combat and prevent different types of situations in this report from the idaho farm bureau <music>
14: We, uh, as the safety officers on this fire, we monitor each divisions um, uh, through uh, the operations they'll be, they'll be going through each day. So um, that evening we'll have a, a meeting with, um, with operations, with the divisions, with safeties. With, uh, there's an air attack base out there with helicopters and we all get together and discuss our plans for the next day. And then the safety officer basically lists all the hazards that they can think of that they could face in that in those missions, and look at uh, you know is it is it a mission that we need to be doing, and if so, how can we mitigate as many risks as possible to make it a safe mission? So, for instance, uh, like I said, driving out here. Uh, this is just a, a smaller incident, but driving out here, we talked about the animals, so just making sure to mitigate that, that we let people know each day and remind people because people are tired they are working 16-hour days, just simple things like, hey, make sure you get your lights on, make sure you stick to the speed. Uh, it may seem a little slow, but there's been a deer sightings, just so make sure that. You know, make sure if there's buckets working in an, area, in an area where we plan to do bucket drops that heavy equipment isn't working because they're dropping multi-swimming pools worth of water uh, down to the ground. and uh, even heavy equipment like a dozer's in there or some individuals are in there uh, plugging in hose or building line that can be uh, detrimental um, If they're planning on going in and uh, scouting or working in an area making sure snags are mitigated before we get uh, folks on the ground into that into that area. That's basically the, the primary mission I would say
1: So, as a public information officer, my number one priority is keeping the public informed. Um, I have information boards posted around the area that um, I update the maps and some facts daily on it, and um, we answer phone calls and emails, questions from the public about what's going on out here. Um, We hold community meetings, so to get people together that maybe don't have access to internet or um, the conventional ways of learning information, and we have kind of question and answer sessions. Um, we hold cooperator meetings, so all of the, um, you know, the fire departments, the police department, um, the Forest Service representatives, a whole bunch of cooperators that are working with us. We have kind of information sessions with them also. So that we try to get as much information as possible. We're not trying to keep secrets.
15: So we're at the uh, Coeur air tanker base and um this base, uh, we refill the air tankers with retardant um, after they drop. So an uh, airplane will, will come into the ramp area here, um, we'll, we'll pull into the pit, and our personnel direct them where to park, and then we have personnel that come out and load the airplane with retardant, and it's uh, like this plane behind us here will hold 3,000 gallons of retardant, and we can load them in eight minutes or less, and then they're back out again to go and make another drop. So. They have to come back here after every drop to get reloaded. And then we can also refuel them while they're here as well.
9: And the drops can be hundreds of miles away?
15: Yeah, these air tankers can respond anywhere in the country. They're a national resource. Um, We're we're fortunate that we get to have them here when they are available.
9: We look at the fire behavior and how fast the fire is moving. We want to make sure that we have enough time to do whatever actions we're talking about. And in the case of the Kootenai River complex, it was putting in, putting in dozer line and hand line along the public, private lands boundaries and in certain cases we'll, you know, we'll we'll do our structure protection work which could include putting, uh, you know, we'll have some blivets or portable water tanks that we, uh, that we run portable pumps off of that we can have, say, a small sprinkler system around somebody's structure. Sometimes we'll, if we've got a good steady stream source we might even put a sprinkler line in as our as our primary uh, um, line and just wet the fuels down so the fire's not going to want to move move through it do some a little bit of you know, shaded fuel break right along the, along the line and that's some of what you'd see up there on the Cougar River complex as we've gone around and we'll, we'll inventory all where all the homes are at and, and then We'll order the equipment that's needed to put it in place. And then based on where the fire's at and how it's behaving, we'll decide, yep, it's time to put that equipment in place so we're ready if the fire chooses to move down in this area.
0: Well, many producers may see their profit margins squeezed a bit this year as commodity prices fall and input costs rise. Here's Gary Crawford with more.
4: A drop in farm cash receipts and net income. That is what USDA's analysts are projecting for this year. The latest forecast has producers generating just over $150.5 billion in net cash income.
11: Down about 21% relative to last year
4: which was a record high income year. This from Spiro Stefano. He runs the USDA's Economic Research Service, and he says USDA is projecting a 4.3% decline in total cash receipts, a 3% drop for crops. Corn, soybeans, cotton, fruit, vegetables,
11: all forecast to go
4: down. Only wheat will see an increase in receipts, but by less than 1%. Livestock receipts, meanwhile, expected to drop by 5.7%, led by a decline in dairy sales. Also, farmers will get a lot less from the government. USDA says direct government payments will be down this year by about 34%. Meanwhile, on production expenses, last year those went up 11%. You may remember this year. They're going to increase, but not as much, about 4% led by interest rate expenses up 22%, much smaller increases for livestock and labor, possible small declines, maybe, for fertilizer, fuel, and feed. But in general, most producers are going to see profits drop from last year's record high by almost 21%. (laughs) But is this the right music for this story? One analyst says, no, this is not going to be a gloom and doom year. First off, almost any year, In connection to
3: 2022, is going to look less favorable.
4: USDA's chief economist Seth Meyer told us we have to look at this new forecast not as a farm income disaster by any means.
3: Yes, it is declining relative to last year. Yes, receipts are falling. Yes, government payments are falling. Yes, input prices continue to rise, but it's still a better than the long-run average farm income year.
4: Meyer says this is not a case of asking, is the cup half full or it's half empty? The glass is three-quarters full. It's still a quite good year for farm income. He says producer margins may be squeezed, yes, and so... We're tightening the belt here a little bit. Still got plenty of room. And Meyer says the farm sector will make it through this year. Still in pretty good shape. This is not in good shape. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
0: Just ahead, our final segment with new developments in our country's challenge of Canada's dairy rate quotas, and of course, we'll bring you Paul Marchant's Irons in the Fire on the
10: Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. It may not require a textbook, but it's filled with valuable lessons. It may not take place in a classroom, but it's an ideal environment for learning. It may not involve a diploma but it can help prepare Idaho's young people for life. It's high school sports. High school sports can play a critical role in a student's overall education. In fact, studies show that students that participate in high school sports are more likely to enjoy greater levels of achievement in their academic lives. If you think high school sports are only about competition, think again. Better yet, think about attending a high school sporting event in your community. You'll be amazed by what you see. High school sports, a winning part of a complete education. This message presented by the Idaho High School Activities Association and the Idaho Athletic Administrators Association.
0: Welcome back to the final episode of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. The U.S. is again taking their dispute of Canada's dairy tariff rate quotas before a U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement dispute settlement panel. Here's Rod Bain with the details. The latest
2: development in U.S. efforts to expand market access of our nation's dairy exports to Canada were recently announced.
5: The United States Trade Representative has launched a second dispute panel request so that we can have a case in front of Canada that will lock them into the kind of market access that our dairy farmers deserve and expect.
2: That's U.S. Trade Representative's Office Chief Agricultural Negotiator Doug McCaleb. By way of background about this ongoing case within the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement framework.
5: Under the USMCA, the government of Canada made commitments to our U.S. dairy farmers that they would have entry for their products into the Canadian market. However, really what the ensuing couple of years showed was that the Canadian government did not provide the access that our producers felt would be fair and equitable.
2: That led to the initial U.S. request for a USMCA dispute settlement. settlement panel, leading to a December 2021 ruling favoring our nation in its challenge of Canada's dairy tariff rate quotas. Since then,
5: Canada's implementation, once the U.S. won that case, still didn't provide the market access our farmers deserved. And essentially, they locked out importers that were actual retailers and actual sizable importers.
2: As for how the dispute
5: settlement process will work... We bring the case, our findings, and our documentation to the panel. The way these things operate, we would expect to have a response and a finding from the panel in 2023. So that will take place within this calendar year. And we're really focused on this case that's in front of us. We think that we have got very clear and solid backing for it. We think our dairy farmers are in a very solid position.
2: Ambassador McCaleb is no stranger to the USMCA challenge to Canadian dairy policy. Having worked on this issue as a senior advisor at USDA,
5: he adds, We want to make sure that we get all the market access that our farmers deserve. And that includes dairy farmers, includes all farmers. So we are going to look at the tools we have. We're going to exercise those tools. And that's exactly what we're doing under this UMCA panel request on dairy.
2: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: And now Paul Marchant shares with us the latest And last, Irons in the Fire.
16: Hello there, this is Paul Marchant coming at you with another version of Irons in the Fire. Let me begin by saying it's been a privilege to be a part of this program these past several months. I hope that my small offerings have made a positive impact in spreading the good news of American agriculture. Back in the day when I was a Fair to Midland high school football player, I did my best to take heart in a phrase our coach often used in his efforts to get the most out of our small town team. It's a phrase I, as a fair to midland high school basketball coach, have occasionally borrowed in my own feeble efforts to inspire the sons and daughters of the cowboys, dairy farmers and migrant workers who make their homes in the high desert of southern Idaho's Oakley Valley. And the phrase is this, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Now, when I was a high school junior, our football team on the strength of a stout senior class was good, and I mean really good. I think we spent most of the season ranked number one or two in the state's polls. We went through the first half of the season wondering actually what it would be like to have another team score a touchdown on us. Ultimately, our season ended in the state semifinals where we lost when we tried to win the game with a two-point conversion in overtime, which failed. It was during this season the weakest link mantra was seared into my brain. Now, I'm a lot more Uncle Rico than I am Patrick Mahomes or Emmett Smith, but I wanted to believe it. And I tried as a member of the team to work as hard as I could to make sure the part of the chain that was me didn't snap and break the chain. Here's the thing though, I didn't really believe or fully buy into the chain-inspired hype. You see, I didn't find my way onto the field during games all that much during the season of my junior year. The senior class is one of the biggest in history of the school, and that big class was loaded with some really big, strong, stout, surly lads. My role was mostly to serve as practice fodder for the guys who did the work and gained the glory in the games. I was pretty sure I may have been one of the weakest links on the team chain. I was also reasonably sure my absence or presence had very little to do with whether or not my team won or lost any of the games on our schedule. And you know what? I may not have even been the weakest link on the team. Maybe I was somewhere in the middle. But that team was still going to steamroll pretty much everybody we played and it had nothing to do with me. Nope, I never could really come to terms with that weakest link nonsense. At least in terms of being a member of that football team. But I can't argue the idea is a form of motivation for a high school sports team as long as the team isn't made up of a bunch of deep thinkers. Now if the girl who occupies the end of the bench and rarely sees any playing time on the basketball court figures out that she can loaf during sprints at the end of practice, what's the harm in that? From certain perspectives, maybe there's no harm, but here's the rub as I see it. It all hinges on perspective or vantage point or point of view, however you choose to frame the semantics. My mediocre abilities as a scrawny third-string running back on a juggernaut rural high school football team probably had actually little effect on the outcomes of any games that team played. So does that blow up the whole weakest link theory? Time, experience, multiple successes, and probably even more failures tell me no. I perhaps changed my tune and my perspective has most certainly shifted in the decade since I failed to become the reincarnation of Gale Sayers. You're always going to be a link in a chain, even if you don't understand or recognize your part or your role in that chain. And every chain links to another chain. I've always been fond of the saying, no man is an island. It's something I've often preached to my kids, mostly inadvertently by things I've said or done, for better or worse. All too often, what I've said or done has had a negative effect on my section of the chain. Instead of strengthening the chain, whatever chain it may be, I've ended up smashing a link with a 12-pound sledge. But experience, both good and bad, has proven I'm always linked to someone besides myself. And if I choose to be a weak link or a strong link, somehow or other, someone else will eventually be the recipient of the results of that choice. So in the end, I'm afraid I must report that you're probably better off buying into the weakest link hocus-pocus, even if coach never puts you into the game. This is Paul Marchant signing off with another version of Irons in the Fire wishing you nothing but the best. And remember, if you'd like to reach out to me, I can be reached at paul at by email or through my social media links on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, or Instagram. My book, Musings of a Would-Be Renaissance Cowboy, can be found by searching Amazon by book title or author name. That's me, Paul Marchant. And that's going to do it. Once again, not just for this week, but permanently.
0: It's been a pleasure bringing you the program for more than a decade. And my hope is that we've been informative and that you've enjoyed hearing the program each weekend over the years. Special thanks to Paul Marchant, my good friends at the Idaho Farm Bureau, to Ben Eborn, who for years provided us great livestock reports, and thanks to the program director and manager of this radio station. Thank you to the USDA, the American Farm Bureau, to our congressional delegation, our friends at the Idaho Department of Agriculture and the Idaho Rangeland Resources Commission. Once again, thanks most of all to Idaho's farmers and ranchers and you, the listener. It's to you, I bid farewell on this final episode of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson.